inflation and deflation are not zero sum. They, they're cyclical. But the end result to bail out the system, which is more important than the currency, will be more mouse click money. And I and I can we could walk through with a calendar and a compass and a, and a, and a map in every scenario in history, going from ancient Rome to China to 1990s Yugoslavia to Weimar Germany to Franco Spain to 1920s America to today, whenever a system is at risk and things start to fail, it is always the currency that is sacrificed to keep the powers that be in play. Always, without exception. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Right now, surprisingly robust economic growth of 4.9% is currently expected for Q3. And inflation remains contained below 4%. That's less than half of where it was a year ago. Well, this is great news, right? The economy's rebounded, the Fed is taming inflation, and we've dodged the risk of a recession. Well, not really, warns Matthew Pippenberg of Matterhorn Asset Management, the proprietor of GoldSwitzerland.com. In fact, this is a dangerously wrong narrative that too many are swallowing right now. To find out why, we'll hear it straight from the man himself. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to be back, Adam. Hi, it's always great to have you on the channel, Matt. You know, this is your second appearance. Uh, the first time you were on the channel a couple of months ago, um, so nice to have met you. Very smart man. Turns out you and I have a lot in common. We have a similar alma mater. We were actually there, uh, overlapped while we were there, even though we didn't know each other while we were there on campus. My loss, obviously. Um, but the response, Matt, was great. Uh, folks just really loved that discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. They loved your articulateness, how you were able to sort of distill complex thoughts down into very understandable, digestible terms for folks your obvious intelligence, your experience. Um, so I'm building you up a little bit here, uh, <laughs> but it really was genuine um, gratitude and, uh, and, and mm. just you know a huge um, appreciation from the wealthy on audience. So I know those mm. folks are gonna be very excited to have you back here for oh, round great. two. Got a lot of questions for you based upon a recent piece you posted, but before I get to them, can we just start with the general question I like to kick these discussions off with, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? <laughs> It's, it's a great question. I should have been more prepared because you're right. It's it's a leadoff question. It's important. I think, like last time, I remain bemused and jaded, hopefully clear-eyed. I think to your earlier point too, it's I think for those of us who spend our time in the markets professionally, there's a need, really, frankly, an obligation um, to derive the simple from the complex. And um, now more than ever, uh, I'm reminded of Patrick Moynihan, who had that famous quote that, um, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. Mm -hmm. And there was a great social critic, kind of political critic, uh, DeShane Stokes years ago, who said, you know, when you're when you're questioning a system or an oligarchy or a financial structure or a political structure, uh, and you're looking for fraud or frank fragrant lies, you have to look at what's not being discussed, these the sins of omission or, you know, the, 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 the denial of certain facts. What I see right now at the global macro level is really almost a, an orchestrated choreographed Truman show where really obvious facts with mathematical implications that are really beyond debate, whether that's about debt levels or inflation or recession or currency direction longer term and perhaps worst of all this pravda like debate about a hard or a soft landing when the way i look at it and we can get into this in more detail 
uh, the hard landing is already there. The, the, you know, the plane is crashed onto the runway. The front tire is rolling down. The passengers are screaming from the fuselage. There's nothing soft about the facts that I'm looking at right now, empirically. And in, in, in those facts are being omitted and they're being emplaced instead, I see, from our policymakers, left or right, because they're really two stirrups to the same saddle. Instead, what we're seeing are debates of matters of degree, like matters of degree of inflation or matters of degree about the next rate hike or cut or matters of degree about uh, de-dollarization. I think we need to keep it simple, stupid, because the stupid is very simple. And, and in that regard, it goes back to the theme we talked about that hasn't changed, it's only gotten worse, is debt. You know, when you have a debt to GDP that's crossed the Rubicon of 100%, we're now you know, we're dialing in at 120 plus, and when deficits are 9% of, of GDP, you know, you get to the point that Mohammed Al Arian talked about where there are no good scenarios left. That's that's just a fact. And that you have to then your system or your policymakers are forced to make a choice uh, between saving the currency or saving the system, the saving the bond market in particular, because the bond market impacts the equity market. It impacts pensions it, in, it in, in impacts financial markets and banks. And I think that is not precious metal gold switzerland you know executive out of zurich who sells precious metals trying to sell fear there's a lot of that in the retail space and precious metals it's a lot of the criticism that gold bugs or gold bulls are always gloom and doom i think it's not fair to be that way there are exaggerations in our space but the math in history is pretty basic, you know, from David Hume in 1752 to von Mises at the turn of the century to Thomas Jefferson in the 1830s to Ernest Hemingway, as we talked about, debt does destroy nations. You can't get around the fact that liquidity is what drives a, a nation and drives a market. When you hit debt levels that are unsustainable, when you cross 120% debt to GDP, growth becomes mathematically impossible. This is not discussed enough. So liquidity has to come from somewhere. And unfortunately, in our situation now, because of our debt levels, that liquidity, in my opinion, hasn't changed at all, will eventually come from a mouse clicker at the Eccles Building, the home of the World Reserve Currency, where it's created and mass produced and ultimately debased. And I think this is something I'll, I'll close this point with. Monetary policy can be used to support bonds. You know, that can be through QE, dovish, you know, the dovish QE policy and in, in, in lower rates. Or monetary policy can be used to support currencies. That's hawkish with higher rates and QT. But monetary policy can't support both the bond market and the dollar at the same time or the currency at the same time. And ultimately, my theme, which hasn't changed and will not change, is that because of our debt situation now, there will have to be a choice made. We either save the bond market, which means save the system, because that's tied to the equity markets, to the financial markets and everything else, or we let the currency you know, fall on its sword and we sacrifice the currency to save the system. And that, as Luke Roman said, is inevitable. I don't know what it means in the next 12 minutes or 12 months. I see that as inevitable. I see that as an inflationary endgame, which is highly destructive to all of your viewers, whatever their economic class, whatever their sophistication level. It's an invisible tax on all of us. It will affect the middle class the hardest, but I don't see any way around the monetization of our otherwise unsustainable debt. And I think that is incredibly mathematical and historical, and it's not debatable or doom and gloom, precious metal gold executive from Switzerland. I think that is the hard end game that we're looking at. And, uh, uh, and to my other point, I think the soft landing, hard landing debate is distortive because we're very, very much in a hard landing already. I'd love to talk about more of that.
All right. Um, so many great points you brought up there. Um, like I said, I got a lot of points here from your your recent piece, which actually touches on a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I maybe you want to fast forward to the punchline of the discussion really quickly. Uh, two things. Mm -hmm. um, one is what you just described there, um, more or less a prediction of um, a destruction of the currency through hyperinflation. Um, that we'll, we'll talk about the potential inevitability of that. I'm going to put those words in your mouth, but I believe that you, you do think it's probably likely inevitable. Um, I just want to make it super clear. That's your long-term view. That's not necessarily mm -hmm. what you expect, say, in the next six months or so. You're not, you're not predicting like a hyperinflation of the currency immediately. No. Yeah. I don't okay. know. I don't think anyone can say that. I think Luke Groman put it best. I can't say 12 months out, but I can, you can see, you can see the clouds on the horizon. You can see the rain. I just don't know if it's at noon, 3.30 or 4 p.m. I just don't know. No one really does. Um, right. But, uh, and, and I just yeah. asked this to make sure that people don't say, oh, my gosh, you know, I totally agree with what Matt's saying. And so I'm going to prepare for right. hyperinflation tomorrow. Right. Right. No, uh, no. There, there could be deflationary, you know, absolutely. Birds along Ab the way. Absolutely. OK. And then um, you said you have to make a choice, protect the system um, or protect the currency. Mm -hmm. um uh, this is a leading question but like <laughs> um <laughs> is there really a choice in other words given how much debt is in the system right now mm -hmm. what would it take to quote unquote uh you know if we were going to protect the currency right mm -hmm. if we if we were really going to protect the currency we would have to keep rates high mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. where they are right now like can the system sustain even under even under the current rates that we have right now like or mm -hmm. have we already crossed the rubicon i think you even used that term earlier on like mm -hmm. do we have mm -hmm. so much debt in the system that if we truly decided to protect the currency instead the entire economy might break well think about it yeah I mean, it's a very important question if we remained higher for longer some would say dumber for longer um Again, by the way, a five and a half percent Fed funds rate, which everyone thinks is so painful and so interesting that Powell's reach is really in, in the grand scheme of things, a normal Fed funds rate. It just seems higher because we've gotten used to zero bound for so many years. That was highly distortive. But to your question, if we keep rates at five and a half or six or six and a half percent, if we continue to push rates up, of course, we'll keep the dollar stronger, not just relatively, but you know, in, inherently it'll be stronger. Rising rates will keep the dollar stronger. But rising rates also increases the cost of our debt. We've just cost 33 trillion in public debt. We've added yeah. another 1.9 trillion to the back end of this year. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but we have doubled, I believe, the annual debt service cost on the national debt within just the yeah. past two years alone. It's extraordinary. And we're averaging at about 500 billion a month. And so we're not going to get that from GDP. And we'll talk about you know GDP growing, but debt is growing faster and at a higher pace. But you know, you're not mathematically going to get um, growth naturally. You're not going to get it from revenues or tax receipts. So it's got to come from somewhere. So you're going to have to monetize that debt. And then I think that's why inevitably this concept of fiscal dominance is inevitable. As you, as you raise the cost of debt and as you raise debt and you don't have the funds to pay for it, you're going to have to manufacture synthetic liquidity through a central bank policy to cover the debt interest expense. The interest expense on Uncle Sam's bar tab is now over a trillion a year. That is not payable uh, unless we monetize it at some point. Now, people could say, well, we haven't had to pivot yet. But frankly, last September, a year ago at this time, the Department of Treasury pivoted for us. We emptied the TGA, the Treasury General account, to create backdoor liquidity. 
So that was a, a one trick pony. And in a sense, Janet Yellen kind of trumped Jerome Powell by creating liquidity indirectly. Then we had the right. BTFP program that created another backdoor QE, another backdoor dose of liquidity. People don't realize that the BTFP program costs more than TARP ultimately. So we had to spend more money than we did in 2008 to bail out the too big to fail banks. So we have created some pivots off the balance sheet, so to speak, outside of Powell's you know, purview indirectly through the TGA account and in this, in this bank funding program. So we bought some time. But as we keep extending our debt levels and increasing our fiscal policy like drunken sailors, we have to monetize that. We have to pay for that somewhere. Again, my argument is empirically that's not coming from tax receipts and GDP. That's going to have to be paid at some point um, uh, or we're going to we're not going to we're never going to default on our treasury, on our sovereign bonds. And if we and if we don't support them, then bonds get weaker and weaker and yields get higher and higher. As yields get higher and higher, interest rate gets higher and higher. So we're in this vicious circle where we're, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. We have to do something to keep those yields controlled. We have to do something to keep those bonds from falling too far in price. Right now, Powell's policies are putting tremendous downward pressure on bond prices, which puts upward pressure on yields because they're inversely related. Right. And when we're adding another 1.9 trillion to the back end of this year, we're issuing bonds at a rate we haven't seen in 55 years. But we're also seeing foreigners less interested in those bonds. Who wants an IOU from a government that's giving you a declining asset that's 120% over its skis and debt? It's a bad credit. Um, and we can get into the debate about Brent Johnson and how it's still the best horse in the glue factory and no matter what. And there's a lot of strength to that argument. I, I think what Brent Johnson is missing and what I think Luke Roman and others are catching on is, A, the flow to the U.S. Treasury has already happened. And B, this notion that we can keep interest rates higher generationally, like Jim Grant argues, is ignoring the fact that we're hitting a wall, that we're not going to be able to avoid a pivot at some point sooner than the next 10 years. At some point sooner than that, we just won't have the money to pay for our own IOUs. It's not going to come naturally. The only solution, I guess the other only solution is we, we cut our spending by 40%, but I don't see a politician left or right who can get elected on that right. on that platform. Oh, we could do nothing and just let rates stay high and let more banks fail, more businesses go bankrupt, more small businesses disappear, more Spotify's, more Amazon's, more Google's lay off more jobs. But we can't cut our spending. It's political suicide. Um, we we can't incre we can't increase our GDP at a rate high enough at these debt levels to grow our way out of this. So we're going to fall back to a mean reversion of relying on that mouse clicker at the Eccles Building again. That may seem sensational. I, I haven't had anyone show me an argument that gets us out of that scenario. And when that happens, and again, no one knows when or what the real trigger will be. And we can talk about all the things that already are breaking, but when that happens, that will be inherently inflationary policy reaction. And in the interim, to your earlier point, we could have a market crash, a bond, a further bond crash, an S&P crash, which will be a disinflationary interim scenario because inflation and deflation are not zero sum. They, they're cyclical. But the end result to bail out the system, which is more important than the currency, will be more mouse click money. And I and I can we could walk through with a calendar and a compass and a, and a, and a map in every scenario in history, going from ancient Rome to China to 1990s Yugoslavia to Weimar Germany to Franco Spain to 1920s America to today, whenever a system is at risk and things start to fail, it is always the currency that is sacrificed to keep the powers that be in play. Always, without exception. Without exception. And part of that is it's... <laughs> 
I mean, it's a mathematical dilemma, right? Because you you have to basically say, we're going to destroy the currency, right? Over time, if we mm-hmm. keep doing this, or, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a tomorrow problem, right? Yeah. Or we're going to start defaulting today, right? Yeah. And any politician uh, is going to vote for kicking the can to tomorrow if they can, right? And, and any um, power broker, anybody that is benefiting from the system is not going to want to accept default today too. And they're going to put the pressure on the political class to, yeah. to kick the can, which is already what the political class wants to do, right? As you said, yeah. it's it's a very predictable human decision. We just make it every single time. Every, every Basically every society that has faced this problem has always eventually yeah. picked the currency destruction route. Yeah, I think history is still a guide, no matter how much we try to cancel it, the bad, the good, and the ugly of it. We have to learn from it. And um, again, we have to, this is something I talked about with Grant Williams last year. You know, wisdom is not just IQ or SAT scores. It's accountability. It's recognizing, it's it's recognizing failures. It's being accountable for them and being blunt about solving them. I think it's very hard for a politician to be blunt about the austerity needed, the spending cuts needed, the entitlements that need to be cut and, and, and say that in a candid way to the American people and get reelected. Um, we can always blame politicians for being dishonest, but us as voters also have to recognize that we don't like to hear what we don't like to hear either. And there is a sin on our own part for wanting to vote for the platitudes and promises because that makes us feel better at election time. But I think, I think the American people, you know, can follow the Kennedy mantra of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But they have to trust that government. They have to trust that country. They have to trust that leadership. I think if we had an honest politician and an honest policymaker and a population that was treated fairly, they would be willing to try to, to tighten their belt and get through what needs to be done to cut our spending because we, we don't have a life raft that fits everything and solves everything. We're going to have to make compromises. It's You can blame the politicians, but you have to blame the voters too. We have to all be realistic. And I don't know which comes first, the, you know, the chicken or the egg or the cart or the horse. I haven't seen too many honest politicians and I haven't... I still have seen a lot of brave Americans who are willing to be told the truth. I just not sure if those ever, those right. two Venn diagrams overlap. Right. Or, or to hear the truth and to sign up for sacrifice. Right. Um, we're, we're, we're not, we're not the greatest generation, not as a society today. And, and our politicians are not, and they're not trusted that way. What's interesting you know. is going back to the gener- greatest generation, you know, they, part of the reason why there was so much social cohesion back then was because the nation was it passed through the crucible of World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know we united around a general threat, uh, we fought the great evil, we made a lot of sacrifices. Um, you know there was a lot of um, desire and demand for centralized control that we could believe in, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil Howe, uh, the demographer who uh, you know has written the book uh, or has the, the 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 framework of the fourth turning, I just recently talked to Neil a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a, lot, a lot about this. And he, you know, reemphasized that, you know, fourth turnings is where the status quo falls apart. And mm-hmm. as it does, that's where you get more demand from the populace for mm-hmm. more centralized control for government that can come and really take care of the problem, right? And the people line up behind that. So mm-hmm. in many ways, it's sort of human nature, right? Where mm-hmm. you can you can change behavior by insight or through pain, right? Insight is, is doing the math in your head and saying, boy, if I if I keep behaving like this, something bad's going to happen in the future. I should I should clean up my act today, right? 
Mm-hmm. Most cases, we don't do that, right? You, you don't really change your your eating habits until you have that first heart attack, right? Yeah, and I right. think to a certain extent, societally, I, I, I remain maybe still a little opt- hold, hold out some optimism that when the pain gets bad enough, we will mm-hmm. rally and a demand more of our elected officials, demand more of the people who are telling us the truth, maybe get back to that sort of Kennedy era-esque, okay, mm-hmm. you know, we're willing to do the right thing for the future. But I think mm-hmm. right now, we're certainly not there. I think you share that, that same sentiment. And um, mm-hmm. and as people get more desperate, right, uh, you, you go through this process where they, you know, they want sucker. They want they 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 want the freebie. They want okay, or mm-hmm. or you know, just like we have an inflationary problem. I'm having trouble. Cost of living's gone up. I'm having trouble paying my bills. So please mm-hmm. give me more stimulus so I can pay my bills. Where they're basically asking just for more of the same problem right. that's causing the issue, right? So we got to right. get through that part of the cycle first. Yeah, and it's very Pollyannish thing for me to say, but trust. This is this thing I've written about many times. It's very hard to quantify. It's very hard to empirically nail down. We all feel it. It's like that famous Supreme Court justice. I don't know how to define pornography. I just know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to define trust in the system. I just know when it's evaporating. And um, you know, I was watching an interview the other day with Eric Weinstein. It was quite brilliant. I mean, you and I, for example, can talk about the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the NBR and how they manipulate employment data, or I could talk about how they manipulate inflation data. Uh, and, you know, that's certainly worthy of discussion but beyond just those kind of distrusted data dependent things where the data isn't even accurate. So we're dependent on data manipulation, not data dependence. But you get beyond the BLS or the NBR, you look at institutions. And this was something Eric Weinstein was talking about, whether it's um, the NIH or the, the, the World Health Organization or the CDC or the Washington Post, which is really the Bezos Post. There's so many things that we've just come through as a country and as a world in the last few years, you know, and again, this is an easy one, but it's one we all can, regardless of our views, whether it was on, you know, safe and effective vaccines, this was promised by folks like Fauci. And again, I'm not here to take a a pro or con side. I'm just saying it's pretty much empirically true, proven now, post facto. And it was kind of argued during the height of the crisis, the great Barrington and Stanford at Oxford and Harvard and other universities, these things were not true. These were not necessarily perfectly safe or perfectly effective. The fact that there was no debate about that created a distrust problem. And I think, you know, what Eric Weinstein said is after that, after something like Fauci, and again, I'm not trying to just people, but what Eric said is you're dead to me now. In other words, or when universities like Harvard or Brown, where you and I were taught critical thinking and we were taught to have two sides to every argument and we were trained to be critical of anything that usurped our personal rights or our civil liberties or the the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, where those schools taught us that. But those same schools then won't let you go unless you have a certain policy that you follow. My daughter, summa cum laude at Cornell, Phi Beta Kappa, works at Goldman Sachs could not go to Harvard Business School because she refused to take a vaccine that she didn't feel was safe. To me, those types of distrusts are just one example, but we see them in other areas that that you're dead to me now. There's a turning point politically, again, without trying to be partisan, when you, when you wheel in Dianne Feinstein or just to, to vote, or when you have someone like Fetterman, who's not altogether there, just wheel him in to make a vote. 
or when the, the faith in the White House is, is disappearing because, you know, Biden's been there since 1972 as a senator. He's clearly not all there, but we're not really able to talk about that without being seen as too partisan. There's distrust. You had George Santos coming for Congress. It wasn't one thing about his resume that was true, not a single thing where he went to school, what sports he did, whether his mother was at 9-11. You know, if he had been an employee at our company, he'd been fired immediately. And yet he was in Congress. So there's a slow distrust permeating. And there's a book that I think everyone should read. It was written in 2014. It's not tinfoil hat. It's by a guy named um, Mike Lofgren. It's called The Deep State. He's not a tinfoil quack. He was a budget committee member for Congress. He was interviewed by Bill Moyers, a very legitimate, credible guy. And he was warning already in 2014 about this really dangerous marriage between D.C. and Wall Street and the fact that post 9-11, we have now three Pentagons outside of D.C., really in Tyson's Corner and and in other parts where you have over 400. um, Well, you have basically 400,000 private contractors who have high security clearance, who are a revolving door between. Uh, the intelligence agencies and Washington and Wall Street. You have guys like David Petraeus, who were once military guys who now work for Wall Street buyout firms and KKR. And any major executive at Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or Citigroup, which he he writes about, if you're leaving a high-paying job at a, at a Wall Street bank to come and work at an agency in, 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 in D.C., whether it's the SEC or the tax of the IRS or whether it's a regulatory commission, you get multi-million dollar bonuses at B of A, City, Goldman Sachs, before you leave to go into D.C. It's a it's classic case of, of the foxes guarding their own henhouse and getting paid. But, you know, the days were of, you know, Cincinnatus and the Roman Empire where a great general goes back to the farm. No, now they just go into Wall Street and they right. and they survey and control each other. So there's a great, great deal of distrust in our system. We all need these important institutions. We absolutely need three branches of government. I wouldn't argue we need a Federal Reserve. That's a fourth branch of government that I don't think we need. But we need the inhabitants of those institutions to be credible and honest and not working from the same system they're supposed to be regulating. There's a real corruption there that's palpable. I'll just end with a quick anecdote. When I was, I was last week, I was up in Paris talking to an American. He's 81 years old. He is from a, a farm in, in, you know, he's from a farm in New Jersey. He was a great athlete. He went to the Naval Academy for four years, was a starting a football player and baseball player. This was the heir of Roger Starbuck at the Naval Academy. After the Naval Academy, he went to Vietnam, became one of the first members of SEAL Team 4, was a Vietnam vet, was wounded in action. It was Admiral Halsey who got him into the Naval Academy. After Vietnam, he spent his career commanding ships, laying wires all throughout the Bering Sea. In other words, this couldn't be more of a patriotic American. Mm-hmm. You couldn't script a more true blue American story. And when I talked to this man, who's now 81 years old, he has lost complete faith in the system, in the military, in the ideals, because when 51 members of your National Security Service sign a letter saying that, ex- that the, la- the laptop was a Russian a collusion or a Russian lie or a Russian hoax, he says, when that happens, you, you can't trust anymore. And again, these are extreme examples. Again, you wheel in Diane Feinstein, you bring in Fetterman, or you talk about these 51 intelligence members who sign an affidavit attesting to a lie. You lose faith in that system. You lose faith in the people in that system, left or right. And I'm saying that lack of distrust from Wall Street to D.C., the disparity 
in the in the revolving kind of co-option of power that Mike Lufgren again I recommend the book The Deep State it isn't it isn't tinfoil quackery and we're all feeling that now we're not trusting what we're being told and as I opened with a lot of the things that I'm not trusting is what we're not discussing at all we're not allowed to discuss we should be able to discuss what happens when your debt to GDP gets over 120 percent we should be able to discuss what happens when your bond yields get too high that you can't afford them without having to print more money. We should be able to discuss why that when the S&P went up 600% since the great financial crisis, that 90% of that went to 10% of the American population. We should be able to discuss how monetary policy affects social policy and affects wealth inequality. We should be able to discuss why Wall Street has manipulated and migrated to DC to get better pay or better control to regulate themselves. These are not tinfoil-hatted thoughts. These are realities. And guys like Mike Lufgren, who have no axe to grind or no horse in this race, who just want to tell the truth, this is what Eric Weinstein warned. That's malinformation. That scares people because malinformation isn't disinformation. It's information that is contrary to the official narrative. And there is an official narrative out of D.C. And there is an official narrative out of Wall Street. The official narrative out of Wall Street is we're going to be fine. We're going to have a soft landing. And the Fed has your back. What I'm here to talk about today is how many objective reasons why that's simply empirically quantifiably not true. It's just not true. And we can go into that, but we are not being told the transparent truth. Again, left or right, I, I clearly have my biases politically, but I think I'm an equally opportunistic, agnostic, and cynic about both sides of the house right now. But our official story um, and the censorship that I'm seeing and the centralization that I'm seeing and the omission of facts and the omission of debates is very troublesome to me. So that goes back to your larger question. If we don't trust the inhabitants of our institutions, we're not going to be able to cooperate to get ourselves out of this. And the, the one thing I'll say right now is there is no good scenario left. We are going to have to debase our currency if we're not going to cut our spending to, to monetize our debts. And that will ultimately have massive implications on, on all the markets. Yeah. So, um, you know, our debt is growing exponentially um, in an exponential system uh, because of how it's a, it's a multiplicative process where you know each each uh, time increment uh, has grows much more than than the sum of the ones previous, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the, the issue with an exponential system, uh, if you're heading towards a problematic era, is once you can actually see the problem, it's way too late to fix it. Which is sort yeah. of what you're saying here, where it's like there's no good options where we get out of this pain free, right? Yeah, um, yeah. All you can really do once you see the problem is determine how you're going to manage it. And yeah. for all the reasons you just mentioned about the distrust and the poor information, uh, it, we're not going to have that that collaboration. We're nowhere close to having the collaboration needed to come up with a a unified plan for managing this thing. So we're highly likely going to slam into the consequences kind of blindly and at full speed. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, sadly, we're instead of kind of coalescing, we're 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 it's we're we're splintering. You know, this is the identity politics fear. This is what Tony Yu at NYU warned about before his untimely death it was quite sad. But when you have self censorship, when you're afraid to talk about these things because you're being labeled X or Y or left or right or up or down. But we have instead of kind of agreeing, we're we're debating now about Bud Light cans and about you know transgender bathrooms and all these other things we talked about last time. I think. 
you know, a lot of these wounds of the past are still important, but we're bringing them back up to divide us more. I don't think that's helping, but there's also, this is another classic symptom of a failed regime or a failed system that you look for ways to distract the people from what's really at fault. And what's really at fault ultimately is fiscal and monetary because of our debt policies and because of our politics. But we'll, we are being told to blame that. Well, first we can blame it on COVID or we can blame it on Putin. We can blame it on climate change. We can even possibly blame it on little green men from Mars. Anything we can do to distract people right now from the simple, simple, stupid reality that we are like a family, as we talked about, that is living way beyond our means. And no one wants to take accountability for that. No one wants to take their husband or wife's credit card and cut it or tell their son or daughter you're spending too much money or you're not going to get the fancy car or the fancy vacation. No one wants to you know, accept that the part of that blame lies within our own government to stay reelected. We have been living beyond our means, borrowing beyond our means and putting that bill on the next generation to be paid for with mouse click money. That's going to be inherently inflationary. That's going to mean that explains why my children's generation, your children's generation are the first generation in years or in many generations to have a lower in a diminished income expectation, prospects. Yeah. diminished prospects. That is palpable. It's not just financial, it's psychological. There's a lack, there's a lack of that patriotism, like that Naval Academy grad I talked to, that 81-year-old, he's lost his faith. It took him a long time. Our children are already not even with that faith. But the common denominator is there's less belief, less trust. Again, that Pollyannish amorphous term, which we can support with evidence in numbers and ratios and spreads and treasury outputs. And that's the boring math of the bond market and the yields and the spreads that we can get into or all the things that are breaking. But the simple fact is it is a social and financial issue and it's very, very tied together. And we are, we are at that point right now more so than ever. And uh, it is interesting. Again, I have partners and colleagues who are Vietnam vets. I have friends that are vets of the, Af or the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. Again, I'll say they're, they're lions being led by donkeys, but this kind of cynicism, this kind of distrust I see all the time. And I see it among uh, those of us who trade equities and, 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 and credits, too, and who look at macros. We're, we can't ignore these elephants that are all over the, the room and knocking over China one by one. And, and no one wants to talk about it publicly. And, and if you do, you're being labeled a doom and gloomer or a gold bug or someone, you know, these gold bug guys are always saying, you know, things are going to implode. It's the end of the world. I'm not saying that I'm saying it's the, it's not going to be the same as it was for the last 10 years. We have to face the consequences of too much debt. It's really that simple. It's really right. That and simple. I, I want to get into that with you. We, we haven't really even started on the list of questions have you <laughs> about exactly kind of what you're talking about there and let's get mm -hmm. there now, but real mm -hmm. quick, um, uh, to this point about not, not, having this discussion these they're almost they're, they're not even allowed topics right now right mm -hmm. i mean i i think back to the last politician that i can recall who really tried to put these on the table these issues mm -hmm. and it was ron paul and mm -hmm. you know he was he was vilified and uh derided you know for yeah. these things right so you know when he was in the republican primary um you know it was it was good that he was in there because he was sort of Mm -hmm. building awareness of some of these issues. But if you looked yeah. at how his fellow candidates and how the media covered it, it was like, oh my gosh, look at this old crackpot over here. He's right, like right. criticizing the Fed and thinking we should like audit the Fed. And he's just jabbering <laughs> on about debt. And, I mean, he was, right. he really was sort of, you know, derided yeah. and, and made fun of. Um, yeah. And so, you know, obviously 
uh, other politicians see that and say, well, okay, I don't, I don't want to run into that buzzsaw, right? Right, um, right. Ultimately, right. we're going to need to have somebody like him with both the the bravery to do that, but also too, just like the the understanding, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the level of of economic education amongst the average politician in America, I believe, is is pretty frighteningly yeah. low, right? And, and we've talked about yeah. this before, Matt, but like the. Yeah just the magnitude of what a trillion is like just trying to wrap your brain around a trillion. Honestly, you guys like you and I, mm-hmm. we talk about and think about this stuff all the time, but we really can't understand how massive a trillion is. Right. Yeah. And yet for yeah. a, a politician, it's like, Whoa, is this a problem? Well, all right. How many trillions should we throw in that hole? Right. They just don't yeah. understand the knock on effects of something yeah. that massive. Right. Um, yeah. So we, we, you said sort of lions led by donkeys or whatever, right? But we, we, we have these people that are making this, the decisions, the decisions that really matter, who mm-hmm. have a fraction of, of an inkling of, of what they're doing around this type of stuff. So anyways, we yeah. can talk about this forever. And, and you, you talked about Cincinnati. It, it is very sad and shameful, maybe that we're, we've gone from the era of Cincinnati to the era of Citadel. Right. Where yeah. it's just the revolving door between D.C. and, and Wall yeah. Street. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that being said, let's get back to the, the core of your article here, which I think is the meat of what you want to talk about today. Anyways, related mm-hmm. to all this, which is the narrative that we are being told today, what is acceptable right now, what is in the Overton window of discussion, if you will, is mm-hmm. GDP looks strong. Inflation's mm-hmm. coming down. Soft landing ahead. No recession mm-hmm. to worry about. And you yeah. are saying. Absolutely not. I think you even said the hard landings already happened. Like the casualties are already out there on the runway. <laughs> yeah. the, the engines are, 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 you know, half a mile away, burning wreckage, you know. So, uh, so why, why, why should we not be cheering this most recent number, these re- most recent numbers? Well, first of all, the, the simple fact in this Atlanta Fed now, you know, nominal GDP forecast at 5.9% and in, in, in or excuse me, re- yeah, in real terms. It's, it's now 4.9%, just because it's come 9. down a bit since you wrote your article, but it was 5.9 <laughs> when you started just a couple of weeks ago, yeah. And, and I'm saying, okay, but that's also on the back of unprecedented fiscal you know, borrowing and, and U.S. Treasury issuance and more and more debt, you know, another nine point, another nearly $2 trillion by the back end of this year. So it's my, my joke in the article was, it's like if my son was at a frat in college and I gave him my Amex card, and he created growth for the frat based on my credit card and had all kinds of fun with that. He is getting growth, more beer, more kegs, more invitees, kids coming from other campuses. He's getting, you know, he's the Greek god of the frat system, but it's really still just debt-based growth. When that Amex bill has to be paid, we still have a problem. So when you have GDP growth on the back of rising yields because of falling bond prices, because of more issuance and more supply of U.S. treasuries, that's not growth that's just more debt it's really a misnomer i think to call i mean i think it's an oxymoron to have debt driven growth they're, they're mutually inexclusive they, you can't have one it's it's not real growth debt based growth is not growth it's just more debt and the idea that we're in some soft landing or that we have a resilient economy or a strong labor force again to me that is, is that's pravda like that's just pravda like untrue and i and, and again Look at the math so I don't just sound like I'm, again, a tinfoil-headed gold bug gloom and doomer because that's 
I understandable, but I think it's a little unfair. Again, we talked about some of this last time, but so much has happened since then. Again, almost a year ago to this date, we had the guilt implosion on the pension implosion in the UK, which was a direct result of Fed policy here in the US. Then in 2023, early this year, we've almost forgotten we had a major bank failure uh, in, the, in, the, in the regional banks. And in we, addition- we, three, three of the four, four, sorry, three <laughs> of the four largest banks to ever fail have failed this year. And yet we're kind of out of sight, out of mind that because just push that away. The sin of omission, get that off the headlines. We're all good. Ecom carry on. And then in the meantime, we have a 25% year to date increase in bankruptcies. We have corporate debt expenses are up 22%. That would explain why we have 400 bankruptcies year to date. And these 400 corporations that have filed bankruptcy, it's rising at the fastest rate since 2010. It's double the levels of last year. And the top 10 bankruptcies account for 200,000 jobs. And then you look at the layoffs at places like Spotify or Microsoft or Google or Amazon or even Goldman Sachs. I mean, Google is 10,000, Amazon 18,000. Uh, you've got, I think, at least 18 of these companies with a billion dollars in liabilities. That's like you know Silicon Valley Bank or Bed Bath & Beyond. But when you're having these type of layoffs, and by the way, when Google and Amazon or Goldman are doing layoffs, that means they're not making earnings. So there is a correlation between the mm -hmm. markets and the economy. But the bigger point is when you're having bankruptcies and layoffs, how can you say you have a strong labor market? And if you're waiting for the NBER to tell you you're in a recession, they're always going to be a year late. You're going right. to be deep into your knees into recession when it becomes official. The strong labor market, again, Nick Eberstadt's done a finer job than me. I wrote an article about this in 2019. The What is the term of art? The civilian labor force that they use at the Bureau of Labor Statistics to measure U3 and U6 unemployment. They're talking about civilian labor force to measure employment as a percentage. But that civilian labor force omits millions who don't even look for jobs anymore. So it's, it's like it, trying it, to... It, it actually omits over 100 million working age adults. So our, 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 our strong employment, which means we're in a, in a softish landing, despite all the evidence of bankruptcies and layoffs now and to come because of rising rates and rising debt costs, that's simply a, not a true statement. We don't have a resilient economy. We don't have a strong labor force. And even many of those who are employed, that's not multiple job growth. It's individuals with multiple jobs. Again, when you get into the weeds of this, it's like saying we're going to measure the number of tall people in America. But we're only going to use the NBA as our labor pool. In other words, we're, we're skewing the data. Mm -hmm. This is not Matt Pipenberg, gold bug, doom and gloomer, trying to make the world bad and good for gold. I'm saying separate it from precious metals and inflation and debasement of currencies and look at debt. But look at misinformation. By the way, John Williams, who does shadow stats, was just on with David Lynn talking about real true inflation. We have 3.7% by the real labor statistics. He's saying it's closer to 11.5% based on the same metrics that we used in the Volcker era. Yeah. So again, data dependence on data that is not accurate to, to masquerade a story of a soft landing or to masquerade a story of a war on inflation that's victorious when we're not beating inflation and we're not having a strong labor force. And more importantly, Labor is a lagging indicator. We will not see the true pain of our quote unquote strong employment force until we're knee deep. Excuse my other assistant here. I got to get it off until we're <laughs> knee deep in a recession. It isn't me trying to be doom and gloom. It's just trying to separate the fog from the lighthouse so we can see that, no, the labor data isn't correct. The recession data isn't correct. By the way, the recession data is you know the 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 conference board of economic indicators is probably one of the most accurate recession data uh, that we've ever had. It's 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 important. And when they have a 
when they go into a recession threshold where it's down by negative 4%, we are in a recession. We reached that last December. In my opinion, it wasn't just back-to-back quarters of negative GDP, which we ignored last year. It was that LEI indicator. We're in a recession. And ask anyone who just got laid off at Google or Spotify or, or Amazon or Goldman Sachs if they feel like a recession or those who got laid off at those regional banks. In other words, I, I just think you know putting lipstick on a pig to buy time with platitudes to hide math is disingenuous at the at the top down and it's and it's important for people not to be labeled just bearish for bearish sake to look at the empirical facts look at the layoffs look at the bankruptcies look at the number of empty homes i think you had a woman on recently who was just talking about these empty homes that aren't even being listed Melody, right yeah it was fascinating this is a small example i've talked to loan officers at major big banks in commercial real estate just doing my own analysis and and these guys these are guys who work on commission and two or three years ago, they'd be doing loans at the 250 million level, takeout construction loans. They'd be doing 30 to 40 to 50 of those a year. Now they're doing two or three a year. Again, whether it's Melanie Wright and real estate or whether it's commercial loan officers talking off the record or whether it's looking empirically at the labor data and the recession data and the LEI indicators and the number of bankruptcies and the number of layoffs, there is nothing soft about our higher for longer policy. It is already breaking things objectively. Again, this is not a gold argument. This is a macro reality. I don't know how to be more blunt. And, and it's not to spread fear. It, it, there's a lot of opportunities in this too. There's and beyond just gold. There's a lot of opportunities in how to prepare for this. But I think it's insulting to us to, to continually omit the real data and continually omit the real themes and the real topics of discussion while we argue about soft versus hard when it's not even worth arguing about, or we argue about what the next rate hike will be, whether it'll be at the end of the year or next year, what Powell's going to say at the FOMC or at the Brookings Institute. It's sad that we become this dependent on sources of information that are no longer trustworthy and no longer transparent. That, to me, doesn't make me or Rand Paul or anyone else un-American. It's, it's the quite opposite. I think it makes you more American to challenge what I think are fictional data points. And it's not to sell a book, and it's not to create gold clients for me. It's because the majority of your listeners or my listeners or the people I write to can't afford the minimums at Matterhorn. This isn't for my business. This is honestly what I really believe. I think Brent Johnson believes what he believes. I think Luke Groman believes what he believes. You and I believe what we believe. But it's important to be as transparent as possible. I can't believe we're not seeing that from our financial press or our political leadership. But yeah, things are breaking and the list is long and distinguished and it's objective. It's not subjective uh, talking of a book anymore. I don't know how to be more blunt about this. Uh, it's frustrating. And I think one of the best leading indicators, uh, not just to mention a Fitch downgrade, we can throw that in too. Yeah. We can talk about the issuance of more treasuries. But this Anthony Oliver from Farmville, Virginia, one of my favorite little towns in Virginia. I know, well, there's the best barbecue. I think it's called the Fish and Pig in Farmville. He has, what, 70 million hits in one month? That song is an anthem for the middle class, the ignored middle class. That is an indicator in itself. I, I mean, that's tw almost twice the population of the entire country of Canada. And if you look at the number of how many Americans, 325 million, he's got 70 million hits. In other words, he's striking a nerve that people can feel. They don't know about leading index of indicators, economic indicators. They don't know about federal policy, QT versus QE, Dove versus Hawk, Powell soft versus hard. They just feel it. They don't know if inflation is 3.7 officially or 11 and a half real. 
they feel it. Ask anyone who's listening to that song, who's getting tor- tor- you know torn up by it. That's like that's like an animal trapped in a cage, and and, and it's resonating because many many i'd say the majority of americans feel exactly the way he does again <laughs> that's just another indicator that this is not a soft landing not even close and we haven't even seen the worst of it yet so if there's time at the end of this discussion matt i, I do want to get into you know is the bigger crisis that we should perhaps worry about not even necessarily a financial or an economic one but but a social one and and i think um mm-hmm. Oliver Anthony's from out of nowhere success with that song, I think is a good example of some of these social fault lines that are beginning to break open here. Um, But uh, we still have to to churn through uh, some more key (laughs) points that you mentioned here. I just want to summarize um, in your article, you call this the open secret hiding in plain sight, but but basically it's what you said earlier, which is Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons why you just went through this long litany, right, of of data that you're looking at that's saying, guys, w- what's the debate going on here? <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's already over. We can see all this destruction on the ground, right? Um, but I, I, a lot of the, the, the classic indicators that people watch are being, mm-hmm. you know, propped up right now by mm-hmm. all this deficit spending that's going on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got this high expected Q3 GDP number. The stock mm-hmm. market has performed really well this year, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there, there's indicators that carry weight rightly or wrongly that mm-hmm. the establishment can say, look, we're doing a great job. Pat us on the back. We got a great report card, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Very deceptive from your point of view, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, showing people the great meal that the Titanic is serving as opposed to <laughs> saying, hey, there's an iceberg, you know, right, right out there. Um, so we've got that going on. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. this early on, and, and I just want to clarify it here for folks. So um, your big concern is that, okay, things aren't great. Right. We're propping things up right now with this, the success of deficit spending that can't last forever. There are implications for that. Um, and we get into this trap, which is called fiscal dominance. Mm-hmm. Right. And as I understand it, but I'll let you clarify for folks, this mm-hmm. is when you're trying to fight inflation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so uh, you raise rates, as we've been doing right now, that causes yields on debt to rise. It causes debt to be a lot more expensive. And that eventually creates breakages, if you will, in the system that to address the only way the central planners really know how to address it is to go back to your, what do you call it? Magic money, printer money. Yeah, mouse click. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah mouse click money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and create, you know, new money to plug the holes, right? Which which basically is a trap because obviously if you're trying to inflation, fight inflation, mouse click money, mouse click money is the opposite of fighting exactly. inflation. It's a tragic it's the irony of ironies. Yeah. You know, you've described it quite well. I mean, this was this was this isn't just us perma bear doom and gloom uh hard asset guys in Switzerland or elsewhere in the world. This is from the St. Louis, uh the St. Louis Fed did a white paper on this in June. Luke Roman picked it up and wrote brilliantly about it, brought it to the attention. Again, it's a small circle of people that read that level of detail, but it's important to know the basic irony is that Powell's war against inflation is inherently inflationary. That's the great irony. But I'll take it a step further, and this is the Matt Pippenberg thesis that I've said for years, which is a minority thesis, but I'll say it again. I do not believe that Powell's war on inflation is sincere. I think it's optics. I don't think Powell is really fighting a war on inflation. That sounds incredibly tinfoil-headed. I think Powell seeks inflation. What he has is the benefit of being able to misreport or underreport inflation through the Bureau of Labor Statistics fiction. When, when you get, again, this is math and history, there is no way 
to solve our debt crisis when debt is this high through growth, and we're not going to get it through tax receipts. So the the oldest trick in the book is negative real rates, where inflation is higher than the yields on your bonds, or the, mm -hmm. you know, the, you have negative real rates. But negative real rates is politically dangerous. It looks bad. But if you can manipulate the inflation data, then you can, quote unquote, have a victory. I think Powell is trying to inflate away debt. So if you take John Williams' shadow stats and let's say he, he says it's 11% inflation, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's really 9 or 8%. It's still a huge gap from the official number. But if the unofficial number, the real inflation number is, say, 9%, and yields on the 10-year are 4.4%, then you're running negative real rates. That helps you inflate your way out of debt secretly. That's a hidden secret knife wound to the middle class and to the real economy and to the real citizens of the country. But you are secretly inflating away debt. So I think, and again, I think we could spend more time on this. I think Powell knows that we need inflation to inflate away debt, but I can have my cake and eat it too by misreporting inflation. Optically, of course, he has to say, I want to fight inflation because inflation is bad. It is bad, you know, to have negative real rates officially, too, because it makes it harder to sell treasuries abroad when you're getting the negative return. So he doesn't want inflation to get too high. But boy, if he could have the best of both worlds, it's to report a victory on inflation but then actually let inflation rip. And I think that's the collusion between the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which I think is wins a Nobel Prize for fiction and how they report inflation. I think John Williams is a patriot the way he accurately reports the CPI scale, the way it was used in the Volcker era. So if Powell wants to be Volcker, let's, it use, let's, let's measure him by the same inflation scale. Let's use Volcker the same era. benchmark, yeah. So again, these are tricks. And this is something that Jod Klon Juncker said. He was a former president of the European Commission. Look, when the data is <laughs> bad, we just, we just lie. You know, and, and, yeah, and when and, things and, get bad, you have to lie. That was his You have to lie. And again, that may sound like Pipenberg's just got off the rock. I've looked at this upside down and backwards. I've delved into it. And I really do believe that the inflation narrative, like so many narratives, is convenient, but it's not accurate. And and I think we deserve better than that. But I at the same time, if I were a, a central banker groomed to be a Fed chair, which is really what they are, they're groomed into consensus think and to sacrifice their i think intellectual integrity for the vanity of their job position if i were in his shoes i'd probably play the same tricks to stay in power and to control my legacy but i don't think it's a profile in courage i don't think it's a profile in integrity and in transparency the kind of wisdom that we want in our plato like leaders when you're manipulating data this goes back to my original point the sins of omission the, the quote by deshane stokes would the best way you can see fraud is by what they're not telling you. Um, and so, but again, uh, I think inflation is is really something that Powell secretly needs to get himself out of debt. But even if you take the official narrative that we're doing this just to fight inflation, that we're rising rates just to fight inflation, the fiscal dominance argument means that it actually creates more inflation. I think the reason Powell is raising rates and QT, reducing the balance sheet, is very simple because he sees a recession already here and getting deeper. The only two weapons the Fed has is the price of money and the supply, the, the amount of money. Mm -hmm. they, can, they can manipulate interest rates and they can expand or contract the balance sheet of the Fed. That's it. And so 
up until a few years ago, we had a too fat a Fed balance sheet and we had zero bound interest rates. That meant Powell was impotent in the face of the next recession. He had nothing to cut because rates were already at zero. Right. And his balance sheet was so fat, he had nothing he could, you know, he could expand. But now he's raising rates and reducing the balance sheet. So when it really does become obvious, despite all the things we've talked about, the litany of evidence that we're deep in a recession, when we really see a market sell-off, the real crisis that triggers the Fed, when we see a market sell-off now with a five and a half Fed funds rate, he can actually reduce rates again. He'll have some ammunition in that revolver to actually fight that real problem in the markets. And he'll be able to expand the Fed balance sheet because he's QTing at the same time that he's raising rates. So again, all I think he's doing is he's he had two empty revolvers two years ago. Now, because of QT and because of rate hikes, both of those revolvers have a little bit more bullets in them. That, to me, is the real motive. And that's a minority opinion. I'm a little bit of a contrarian, maybe a kook, but I'm a cynical realist. That's what I would do. Okay. Uh, I don't I think, think too many of the folks I interview on this channel would disagree with you, just so you know. You may not be as alone as you think. Well, again, it's it's a jaded realpolitik version of the way history and math works. So a combination of dishonesty, optics, politics, and, and Fed MO modus operandi, uh, I don't think since Greenspan, and I'd include Greenspan, we haven't had that many moral Fed leaders. I think the only ones that were pretty decent was uh, Martin and Volcker. But I'm saying Powell is par for the course, and he's he's doing exactly what he needs to do. He's he's building his ammunition by raising rates and, and, and reducing the balance sheet so they'll have something, anything that he can use when, when the situation gets far more dire than it is right now. Okay. Let me... Um... Let me just ask you to guess, if you don't mind, just mm -hmm. putting stretching your neck out there. So um, if Powell is is reloading right now, that's what this era is all about. Um, mm -hmm. When the, the next crisis hits, mm -hmm. what kind of magnitude do you think the rescue effort's going to be? In other words, is it going to be as as crazy as we saw during the pandemic, even more crazy or a more mm -hmm. kind of a garden variety recession intervention, you know, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. a trillion or less, which is crazy well, you, that that's low now. <laughs> well, you think about the COVID crisis in March of 2020, we printed more money in the subsequent months than we did in the previous, you know, we went, we went four to five trillion in the Fed balance sheet. That was massive expansion. It was unimaginable before. Unimaginable, unimaginable. And that was based on, you know, the COVID crisis of March, 2020 and the, in the, in the precipitous fall in the S&P, it was 36%. I think it would have gone to a mean reversion of 70 or 80% had we not printed trillions. Um, so to your question, what would it take? Uh, what would be the magnitude of the next time Powell has to pull out the heavy armor, so to speak? Um, well, again, people say we have a resilient S&P. Well, remember last year in 2023, the S&P and the, the combined damage in the bond and stock market was the worst since 1871. The NASDAQ was down 30%, the S&P 15. Where we're at this year is barely getting back to where we were. In other words, there hasn't been this incredible market behavior. We're really kind of rolling up, running uphill in roller skates. The the litany of examples that I just listed, the layoffs, the bankruptcies, um, the 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 distortion in the credit markets to me means that as rates either stay the same or get a little bit higher, 
it's going to put continued pressure on the majority of the zombie companies in the equity markets to not be able to re you know refund or refinance and revalue their books so despite the five or six companies that are the only thing holding up the rest of the market and even those companies are laying off at some point the cost of credit and, and the cost of credit is the key cost of growth in the s p when that becomes unpayable you're going to start seeing earnings fall you're going to start seeing more layoffs you're going to start seeing more faltering stock performance if we see and we will at some point don't ask me when because i don't know when you start to see the inevitable again mean reversion in the s p i think it's a joke to call these markets resilient they haven't priced in the new price because they can't roll over their debt or buy back their own shares like they could three or four years ago there will be an uh-oh moment in the s p the dow and the nasdaq it'll start at the nasdaq it'll creep up to the s p and finish with the dow I don't know when. I don't know what the trigger will be of the headline. I do know that it will always be blamed on something else. It will be blamed on COVID, Putin, global warming, Martians, whatever, or some other geopolitical event. When that happens, there won't be natural growth to sustain. There is no narrative percolating from the U.S. that's going to save this. I mean, Luke Roman said if we find an, an, a miracle battery that replaces our need for oil or right. if every baby boomer that, dies. That is immediately deployable, right? Immediately deployable. <laughs> and if every baby boomer dies and leaves $65 trillion in new money to the next generation and we reliquify ourselves through trust in estates, well, okay. But failing those miracle events, it's math. We are going to mean revert again. And so that again, it comes to the point the Fed will act when the markets, because the Fed and the markets are chained at the hip. That's what they were. That's what the Fed was spawned for, to support the markets and the banks. So, you know, this immaculately conceived beast from Jekyll Island, they will support the markets when they tank, whatever triggers that to happen. There's no natural growth, in my opinion, coming from that. I don't know when that'll be. It won't be 20 years from now. It'll be sooner. It won't even be five years from now. It'll be sooner, in my opinion. Well, think about it. If you if you look at mean reversion on the S&P, what it's going to take to save those markets will require at least a couple trillion in more stimulus, which is, to, as to your earlier point, a trillion to the Fed or to, to the to the Congress is a banalization of, of debt. It doesn't mean anything. It's a number like the Holocaust that has no value anymore because it's it's so inconceivable. I think it will take trillions again. And again, they will be able to, quote unquote, save the markets at the expense of the currency, because you can, you're right, under modern monetary theory, a market could never die if you want to keep pumping liquidity into it, but you will always do that at the expense of the currency. So to your point, last time we spoke, it's either death by fire or death by ice. Mm -hmm. You can save the markets, but you're going to kill the currency. And again, historically, that is always what happens until we have to, you know, do another plaza accord, another, you know, Bretton Woods 2.0 and reset the whole system and do some kind of debt jubilee, I guess. There'll be something, but again, it won't be blamed on the the, the bad actors that put us here. The the monetary policymakers and the politicians that live beyond their means for a generation, it will be blamed on a bad guy or a geopolitical event or another illness or the last illness. They'll never take accountability. They'll never be an honest Adam Smith accounting with a forensic look at our debt policies, our fiscal policies, and our monetary policies. And they'll never be a hard look, as Rand Paul asked, to audit the Fed and say, just what the heck is it even doing there? It is a fourth branch of government. It was never intended by our Constitution to have the kind of power it does. And to many people's point, well, it's a moot point, Matt. It's here. And it is. It's too late. The Fed is here. It is too big to fail in so many ways. But it has failed us. It is, as I said many times, 
like the portfolio manager over our economy, but it is a very poor portfolio poor man, manager. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's it really, still it's still in the role of hero right now, well, right? You know, it is. It, but it, and of course, at some point, you know, hopefully enough people wake up to realize it's actually the arsonist that's creating the fires <laughs> and not the firefighter that's saving us. But we're not quite there yet. Yeah, not quite there yet. Again, kooks like me think it is, but again, I think that's another kind of reason why when things are failing the system and there is a system it is very coordinated um that's why you have to give ben bernanke the nobel prize you have to you have to prop up these paper tigers and give them this kind of uh this kind of imprimatur of, of value because i think printing trillions to save an otherwise failed banking system and to bail out wall street is not hardly uh, the brilliance of a nobel prize but it's it's just solving a debt problem with more debt but we create these heroes we create these needs for platitudes and and iconic notions of what american markets are versus the more debt soaked reality of it the dugly, the darker underside of what the fed has done to our economy and to our markets to free price discovery to capitalism to wealth inequality because I am a capitalist and I do believe in constructive destruction and letting bad companies rot and good companies profit. I don't believe that should be controlled by a central bank. And I don't believe someone should get a Nobel Prize for solving a debt crisis with more debt that just makes it harder for the next generation and that destroys our currency. It always ends in a currency destruction. And again, that's that's just why gold is becoming more popular, not only among high net worth or retail investors, but central banks outside of the US. So let's 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 shift now to the okay, what should people do part of it? Um, mm -hmm. I, I do want to underscore just to your point there. I just saw a chart <laughs> that said that um, uh, sovereign holdings of gold uh, have just hit the highest point in history, basically. Mm -hmm. Part of that sort of intuiting what giant's current holdings are likely yeah. to be because China doesn't yeah. fully report. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it's an important marker, right? Which is, hey, sure. no matter how much the uh, central bankers of the world like to call gold a barbarous relic, <laughs> holding more of it than they ever have, Right. Um, Matt, there's yeah. there's no time to go into this, but hearing your your response there, I, I'd love to have you back on the program at some point in time to mm -hmm. talk about a better system. Like, in other words, if we were given a chance to do a do over, what would you recommend? Yeah. So Gosh, I know there, yeah. there are two big things that happened in the past century that are have a, a lot of. Um, you know, they were very consequential for where we find ourselves right now. One was the formation of the the, cent, the Federal Reserve and the rise mm -hmm. of the the sovereign central bank model that we have, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and then secondly was removing the world's major fiat currencies from any sort of physical backing, yeah. right? Notably yeah. the U.S. in 1971, right, yeah. where fiat currency really could be printed at will, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I, yeah. Don't want to don't put a ton of public pressure on you, but is that a topic you'd be curious to come back? Oh, it'd to? be fascinating. It'd be fascinating. I think to your other point though, just about sovereign gold purchases. I mean, again, it's like again, keep it simple, stupid. If if you're studying history or if you're looking at military history in the past, if you see a country where all of a sudden some king or emperor is bringing all his troops, horses, and cannons to the border, that usually means something's coming. You know, you don't have to be a military genius or von Clausewitz to say, hmm. All these troops are showing up, all these horses, all these soldiers, all these logistical train wagons. Well, when you see central banks stacking physical gold, that's troop movement towards something coming. You don't have to be a genius to see what they're saying. The implications are not the end of the U.S. dollar, not the end of America, not the end of the world reserve currency. But what it really means is the faith in the inherent purchasing power of the world reserve currency is dwindling because every nation knows that the American dollar 
though relatively stronger than any other currency, to Brent Johnson's point, and very important, I totally agree, doesn't change the fact that it's getting diluted like a glass of wine with water poured in it every day. The faith in that greenback is getting weaker and weaker, and they're slowly transitioning not to replace the dollar overnight. It'll take decades to do that. What I'm saying is the strength of that dollar, the inherent strength, not its relative strength, is dissipating before our eyes. It's death by a thousand cuts. It is no coincidence those troops are lining up along the border. Those central banks are stacking gold and they're dumping treasuries. And, you know, what would be really great is I would love to get on with Brent Johnson because I, I agree with 90% of what he says. I disagree with about 5%. And he could be right. But I think what he's not seen, despite how true it is that what are you going to replace the dollar with? The, the, the rupee, the real, the, the, the euro, the yen, the yuan? No. You're not, but it doesn't change the fact that the dollar, not just de-dollarization, the dollar is getting diluted and debased. And it may be relatively strong, but that doesn't change the fact that it's inherently weak. And that's why gold, and again, I'm a gold guy. I'm an executive in Zurich talking my book. But I'd be saying this if I were a private wealth manager at Goldman Sachs, although I'd get fired for saying it at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's that's irony. But I'm just saying this because I actually believe this, and I think the evidence is overwhelming. And it doesn't mean that gold can solve every problem, or that all you should do is buy gold and silver, at the, or you know, short the S and P. That's not what I'm saying. But the evidence, the troop movements are so obvious. If you just keep it simple, stupid, separate all the fog and all the noise, focus on the lighthouse. It's not just gold, by the way. It's just focus on the lighthouse. Focus on the the, the simple metrics. Uh, I, I think it's a fairly clear case. Um, and uh, all right, that's a great analogy of the the troops amassing at the border. Uh, it's just a clear sign that something's going to happen, and that certainly seems to be happening monetarily with all these uh, yeah. record high gold holdings. Um, okay, a couple of things. So first, folks, um, if you'd like Matt to come on and have that discussion that we talked about, please let me know in the comments section. If there's enough interest, I'll try <laughs> twisting his arm on it. Um, Matt, if you want to have that discussion with Brent Johnson and Brent is up for it, I am totally happy to offer Wealthy to. on as the platform to have that discussion. I'd love to. With, I'd and love I will to. say, having talked to Brent, um, I don't think you guys are that far away. Like Brent is, it will say, I'm not a fan of the dollar. Like, I don't like yeah, the yeah. dollar, but I, yeah. I, I, I'm doing the math on how the system's constructed. And I think those that yeah. are expecting it to just roll over and die are highly likely going to be disappointed for all the reasons that, that he puts he out could there. Be, he could be right. Believe yeah. me, I, I think- But I think the two of you together would be a fascinating discussion, no matter how much daylight there is between your positions. Um, okay. All right. So real quick, if we could just- um, have a quick discussion on the, okay, so got it all, Matt. Like, so what do we do about it right now? Yeah. If you can kind of break your answer into two timelines, right? One is the longer timeline, right? Where mm -hmm. answers like gold become pretty obvious, right? Okay. Purchasing yep. power of currency going to go down. What assets should I put myself in that aren't going to lose purchasing power as much? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but probably the more practical for folks is just sort mm -hmm. of in the near term, Right. <laughs> what assets are you looking at right now, given what you see coming? And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but having read your article, it, it does seem like you think that there are short-term disinflationary and deflationary risks heading probably oh, yeah. as we get to you know, mm -hmm. the lag effect causing some things to crack and a market correction as a result of that and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So there, there may very mm -hmm. well be uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, you know, downward price destruction before mm -hmm. we get this big oh, rescue absolutely. that then shoots things to the moon. Oh, yeah. No, it's, you know, it's um, it's an important question. Our interview with Matt will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. 
To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Also, don't forget that tickets for the Wealthy on Fall online conference are still on sale at the early bird price discount of nearly 30% off the standard price. And alumni of our previous conferences get an additional 15% discount on top of that. To lock in these low prices while they last, go to wealthion.com conference. And if the challenges that Matt has detailed in this interview, if you're feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities that Matt's mentioned here. Just go to wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our interview with Matt Pippenberg.